Thank you, worship team. And something that I don't say enough, thank you, tech team. Thank you, facilities team. Thank you, welcome team. And there's kids workers up there. When you, when you pick up your kids, tell them thank you. We have a lot of people who serve and volunteer to make the worship atmosphere and the presence of the Lord real in this place every single Sunday. So thank you for all that you do, everyone behind the scenes. Take your Bible and turn to Habakkuk. We're, we're in a series right now, Answers in Silence. This is part three of five in this series. And as you're turning to Habakkuk, I realize some of you are getting way better at finding Habakkuk. Some of you, this is your first time, and you're still like, well, what did he just say? Habakkuk, is that a book in the Bible? Uh, we'll find Matthew, the last book, or the first book in the New Testament. Just turn back five books, five short books, and you'll find Habakkuk. So far, we have seen a lot in the first two Sundays. We have seen so much. We've seen Habakkuk wrestle with God in silence. He's not hearing anything from God, but he's asking God, why? Why is our country going downhill? Why is, why is there persecution at every turn? Why are you doing this, God? Why did Josiah die, our good king? Why, why are all these things happening? Same things, same things that we ask when, when things are going wrong in our lives. God, where are you? What's going on? Well, God answered Habakkuk, and he said that he was going to raise up the Chaldeans. This is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, and he was going to use them to bring the judgment of God. And that wasn't really comforting at all, because no one wants their country to be pillaged and oppressed by a foreign occupied power. So he had to, again, Habakkuk was like, God, are you sure about this? Wait, are you, are you really going to send them? Those people? They're ruthless. But in the middle of the questioning, you can see there Habakkuk's posture was, God, I don't understand this, but I trust who you are. I see that you are my rock. You are the anointed. You, send this, you, you are my Messiah. You will send the Messiah. He, he is holding on to the truth that he knows to be true about God in the midst of the questioning. Which leads us now to this point where we're, we left off last week because we left off with Habakkuk saying, I'm going to get on the watchtower, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to just wait it out until I hear your response, God. So verse 5 is where we left off in Habakkuk chapter 2. And are we there yet? Are we there in Habakkuk 2? Is everybody there? I gave you enough time? Good. Now, before I read this, we're going to read verses 5 all the way through 20, the end of the chapter. But before we do that, I feel like I have to give you a little bit of prep this time, because what we're about to read is very, very heavy. And I read this numerous times before I could even wrap my head around what God was actually saying, because this is now God's second reply. This is his answer now to Habakkuk, who needs to understand a little bit more of what on earth is going on in his situation with his people. And God's answer is intense. Um, I, I don't want to just like hand you a glass of apple cider vinegar and you not know what it is before you down this. It's going to be hard to swallow, but it's going to be good for you, okay? So three quick things when we read this. Look for God's character. This is something you should always do when you're reading the Bible, but you look for the attributes of God that you can see in the text. If God's posture is this, that means what is true about God as far as his nature and his character. So look for that. Secondly, if you are like Habakkuk and you want to see justice, this is for you, okay? It's going to start to get good here. So put on your justice hat because this is where God is really going to show us how just he truly is. And then lastly, as we read this, we're going to see some dark, scary things about these mean people from 
thousands and thousands of years ago, okay? And so don't just paint this as the Assyrian bad guys from 610 BC and cross your arms and feel better about yourself. No, personalize this because the things that were true about these Chaldeans were also true of Habakkuk's people, and they're the same characteristics that are true of all of us. We are all prone to fall into this. So you have to make this personal. Are you ready to go now? Did I prep you enough? Turn to the person next to you and say, are you ready to go into God's word? Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. I warned you, so we're going to dive right in. Verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects his own, all people, collects as his own, all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, he's talking about the Chaldeans, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence to earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink you pour your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to earth, to the cities and all who dwell on them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its makers trust in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. What a powerful, intense answer of God. And we're going to dive into all five of these pronouncements of woe. But the thing that you're going to see in this series, this is a series about trusting God when you don't understand God. Overriding everything that we just read is this truth. Our glory fades, God's glory reigns. Our glory will fade just like the Chaldean glory faded. It's not going to matter for eternity, and there's going to be one thing that stands the test of time for all of eternity, and that is God's glory. God's glory will reign. So the first point today is, number one, 
Turn from woe. Simply turn from woe. There was five pronouncements of woe that God had on the Chaldeans. And as I told you, you can see the justice of God here. This is encouraging for all of those who are suffering, for all those of us who have been persecuted, have gone through hard times, and we just see injustice in the world. You can see the justice of God from this. But, the, but that's the encouraging side. The, the warning is for all of us who are prone to wander into one of these, these dark ways. Um, and I dare say, some of us in here, maybe you're on that path. I'm not naive enough to think that some of you in here aren't really neck deep into one of these five areas of injustice. So these are the five areas, all right? We have woe to the thief, verses 6 through 8. Woe to the covetous, 9 through 11. The oppressor, 12 through 13. The abuser, 15 through 17. And then woe to the idolater in 18 through 19. And I told you this was heavy. <laughs> I warned you this was heavy. But for those of us who are wrestling in silence and you're having a hard time understanding why, where God is, why he isn't showing up, this is a passage that you would go to to see the character of God. And this is prophetic because as God pronounces woe on the Chaldeans, not too distant future, after the Chaldeans conquer Israel, they're in charge for a couple hundred years, they are absolutely wiped out by the Medes and the Persians overnight, okay? And the, the, the superpower of the world really became nothing, and they have never fully recovered their history or their culture or their heritage. It's, it's, it's gone, and it's never coming back. So what God predicted here has come true to the Chaldeans. But this happened before the Chaldeans even took Judah. And this is what happened to, this. all these things are what happens to a person who rebels against God. So Woe to the covetous, money doesn't, uh, actually, let me back up. I, I skipped one. Woe to the thief, first of all. This is being dishonest with your money. This, is, was, this was in the Chaldeans. This, is in, this has been in countless people's lives since then. But you will get what you sow, right? You reap what you sow. And when you're dishonest with money, when you're short with money, when you're, when you're twisting people's arms and you're not fully transparent, you will get that turned on your head one day. It always comes back around to you. What does verse 8 say there? Look again at verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, and all remnants of people shall plunder you. It's coming back on them. And maybe you're in a career, or maybe you're in a business, where it's really hard to get ahead if you don't cut some corners financially. And maybe you feel like you'll just get just get behind because your boss is forcing you to do it and, and she says you have to do it this way and he says you better do it this way if, if you want to you wanna advance in your career, move up the ladder. You have to remember this truth from scripture. Being dishonest with money never pays off in the end. In the end, everything that you gain by, by dishonesty, by lording over people, that is going to come back to haunt you, and it will burn for eternity. So that's woe for, for the thief. Secondly, it's woe to the covetous. We already talked about money a little bit, but he's just going to pile onto that. Money doesn't make life any better. You may think it does. <laughs> I think of good old George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life, and he's talking to the angel, you know, Clarence. He's talking about money. He doesn't have any money, and, and, and George Bailey's like, well, it sure comes in handy down here, bub. 
like, I need money to survive. It's going to make me happy, right? That's not true. The happiest people I know are Christians who love God and who are walking with God. Some of them have money. Some of them don't have a lot of money. Money complicates things, all right? It always does. And money goes fast. We can all agree on that. It's fleeting. It flies out of our hands faster than water. It flies away, but the bills, they don't, right? They don't go away fast. They linger forever and ever and ever, okay? So woe to the covetous. If you were doing all these things to get money and breaking off relationships and abusing your, your relationships with people, you're going to feel that, and it's not going to be good for you. This is what God says about money in verse 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. And then he goes in to describe, this is almost like a bizarre haunted house scenario. You have like the beams and the woodworks and the stones crying out. God is painting a picture for Habakkuk of a person who has spent their entire life making money and not investing in human relationships, right? So they've made all this money. They have the mahogany wood finished. They have those marble countertops. They have it all. And I've been in houses like this in my life. Millions and millions of dollars poured into this house. And there's a bachelor living there. His wife is no longer with him. He's gone half the year traveling, making money. This elaborate house that's empty. There's no laughter. There's no joy in the house because the person has lived for making money and they haven't invested in the lives of other people. That's the picture that God paints for the person who is covetous. It's not worth it in the end. So what should we do? We should be generous with our money. We should support other people, give to other people. That's where you find joy. The opposite of covetousness is I'm going to bless others. And you know what? In turn, God will give you more because he sees that's a, that's a vessel that I can use that's going to use their resources to bless other people. They cut themselves off. They forfeited their life. It's dreadfully dark. I told you this was intense. I told you this book. From, the, from day one, I told you this book gets intense. And this is, where, this is the way God looks, our just God. This is the way he looks at covetousness. Next, it's woe to the oppressor. Okay, so no one in here has pillaged the city and killed innocent people. That's verse 12. At least I hope not. That's verse 12. That's the Chaldeans. That's not us. But look at verse 13, because in our civilized society, there's another side of this. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Does that sound a little familiar to American culture? Weary yourself for nothing? We may not be conquering cities like the Chaldeans, but I tell you what, we can, we can be oppressed and we can be slaves to the money-making career that we have. What are the sports schedule grind or just the entertainment calendar that you filled your life with? You can become a slave to all those different things. And what good is it, right? What is it really going to do for you for eternity? How does it matter for God's glory? So woe to the oppressor. Our glory fades. God's glory reigns. And if it's not for God's glory, you are literally wearying yourself for nothing. Here's the fourth one. Woe to the abuser. And I'm flying through these because there's so much more in this chapter. 
But this one is really as, as dark as it gets. And, uh, and this, one is very, this, was, this one is very hard to, to honestly even talk about. Um, if you look there at verse, let's see, verse 15. Yeah, verse, verse 15 on the abuser. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour your wrath and make them drunk. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. If you think, what is this talking about? Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. It's talking about what it sounds like, okay? This is, this is abuse. Sexual, psychological abuse that the Chaldeans put over their, over their oppressed people that they conquered. And this is the heart of God towards that. They're going to face shame themselves. Again, they will get what they sowed. It will be turned on its head back to them. This is a really, really hard thing to talk about, and I know there's people in this room who have suffered abuse. And I just want to say, God hates that sin, and this is God's heart towards that. The oppressor, the abuser, they will get it in return. They will suffer the wrath of God. Look at, look at verse, um, where is it there? Yeah, verse 16, halfway down, verse, through, verse 16. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. I told you, your glory will fade, God's glory will reign. What is the cup of the right hand? Well, first of all, when you look at the right hand of the Father, that's throughout the Bible. You see that all the time. Does anyone know what the right hand of the Father is always referencing? You see it in Psalm 110, Psalm 118. I think the easiest, most clear definition of this that you can't argue with is in Romans 8.34. The right hand of the Father. Look at Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So whenever you have a reference of the right hand of the Father, know it's talking about Jesus Christ, God the Son. And then you have this cup. So the cup at the right hand of the Father, what's the cup that Jesus Christ had? Can you, can you think ahead into the New Testament? If you want to look with me in Matthew 26, Matthew 26 actually explains this better than probably any other passage about the cup of wrath. And uh, let me get there myself. Matthew 26, like I said, just like five, five books ahead. Starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the, and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The cup that Jesus drank in, in, before, in his Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, when he was on the cross, you know what Jesus took on the cross, right? He took our sin upon himself 
and he drank the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out in that cup upon him for the wrath of all of our sin. But if you go back to Habakkuk 2, you, you see a shadow of this, a hint of this. The oppressors, the abusers who do not repent and turn from their woeful ways, they are going to face the wrath of God. That's the cup at the right hand of the Father. If they've never repented and, 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 and received forgiveness for that sin, and Jesus has never died for that sin on the cross, they will get the cup that will come around to them. So for all of us who've been abused, just know, even if no one else on this earth knows, God knows, and that person is never going to get away with it. Lastly, it's woe to the idolater. This is the, this is the fifth woe in our first point, to turn from woe. And an idol, you guys know this. We, and this is your very first week here. You've probably heard me talk about this in the past. An idol is anything that you put above God. It's anything that you worship. It could be a good thing. It could be a, a completely normal thing. It doesn't have to be an idol, like made of wood or stone. It could be anything that you worship and put above God. I mean, I know men who make their girlfriend an idol. I have known women who make their husband an idol. I know moms and dads. I know this. I know moms and dads who make their children their idols. We can't put anything else, no matter how great the gift is, we can't put anything else above God the Father that is wrong and it messes things up. All those things, what do they have in common? There's something that you worship that fails to bring what only God can bring. Fails to bring what only God can bring. And you have to turn from all of these. All five of these are in direct opposition to the character of God. So it's encouraging to think that, yes, God is going to bring justice. He will bring judgment on these things. And it's also a warning for us. Don't go down that path. If you're living for an idol, if you're abusing someone, if you're covetousness and living for money, if you're cheating people, stealing from people, do you know what woe is? It's extreme torment. Woe is great distress and misery and that is the end game for everyone who is not following God and not worshiping God. Your glory will fade. God's glory will reign. And if you haven't experienced the judgment of God yet on those things, it's only because of his mercy. You will pay the price at some point. When you think about all of that, all these different things that people do for their own glory and that how, they, how they rob God of his glory, for a season, and you think about, wow, these people really, and, and, and I mean, this could be myself at times, this could be other people around me, they're living for the wrong thing, right? When we live for anything other than the glory of God, we're living for the wrong thing. And it's going to bring regret, it's going to be, bring shame, it's painfully clear that they're on the wrong path. And verse 14 is tucked, tucked away right in the middle of all this. In verse 14 tells us what we need to be living for. Look at verse 14 again. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is really where it's at. And this is the second point. Embrace the glory of God. So turn from woe and embrace the glory of God. This is what we were created for. What is God's glory? 
You see it all throughout Scripture, on every page of Scripture. I mean, we talk about God's glory all the time, but half the time we don't even think about what we're talking about when we say God's glory. God's glory is everything that's true about him. Everything that's true about him. It's the manifestation of of his provision when he sent quail and manna to the children of Israel in Exodus 16. We see in Exodus 16 that that provision was called God's glory. In the devouring fire in Exodus 24, that was called God's glory. The judgment of sin in Numbers 14, that was called God's glory. God's glory can't just be defined by his justice, his love, his mercy. Those are definitely God's glory. Those are definitely parts of it. But that doesn't, that's just part of the whole. You can't get just a simple dictionary, dictionary definition and tie a nice little bow on God's glory. God's glory is everything about him. It's the perfection of all that he is. That is God's glory. And you were created, you and I were created by God in the image of God to glorify God. That is to show his glory. So when you're honest, when you're, when you're speaking truth into someone, you're glorifying God. When you're loving, when you're, when you're just, you're showing God's glory. That's what you were created to do. And we're not all there yet. This has, especially verse 14, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That hasn't happened yet. But we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, to show the world the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the glory of God. That's what we're called to do. And if we live for other things, we're never going to feel this. We're never going to feel a sense of accomplishment, ultimately. We're never going to ultimately feel a sense of peace and security and satisfaction. We're never going to get that because we were created to glorify God. We weren't created to make money. We weren't created just to have fun. All those are aspects of what we're created to do, and that is to show the world who God is, to glorify God. That's what we're here for. So Habakkuk 2.4, the earth shall be full of the glory of God. 2.14, excuse me. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Did you catch how when I was talking about robbing God of his glory for a season, I mentioned that it was just for a season? Sure, we can take glory now, and a lot of us do. Um, we, we, feel, we fill up with man's praise. We take those accolades upon ourselves, and it feels great. But those things aren't going to last Those things never bring complete joy and happiness that last because you're not doing what you were created to do. When I was young, I played basketball all the time. Many of you know this. I loved playing basketball, and I played basketball with my dad. I watched basketball. And he had a phrase that I picked up on. Happy Father's Day, by the way. I I loved playing basketball with my dad. And one of these days, hopefully I can play basketball with my boys. Hopefully one of them will pick it up because I don't really play now, but I'd I'd like to still. But when we played basketball, sometimes it was when I was playing with him. Sometimes it's when we were watching the Bucks on, on League Pass. Sometimes when it was, he was watching my team, the Sterling Christian Trojans, he would say, they couldn't throw it in the ocean. And what he meant by that was they couldn't make a basket. Not only could they not make a basket, they were so off, they couldn't stand in front of the ocean and just chuck the ball into the ocean. So, you know, he's just, he's just my dad. He, he was just like, they can't throw it in the ocean. 
This is what you have to do with everything that isn't for God's glory. Everything that you elevate above God, you have to throw it in the ocean of God's glory. The glory of the Lord will cover and fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we have to take every last one of those things and we have to chuck it in the ocean and just let it sink in there in more than one way. Just let it sink in. I know this isn't a popular message, especially on Father's Day, when I keep saying again and again, our glory fades, God's glory reigns. Why is this not a popular message? Because that's the opposite of what everyone else tells you in the world, right? Our culture is always telling you, hey, be yourself. Go do your thing. You're a champion. You got girl power. You go do this, this and that, and this and that, and yay you, yay you, right? It's all about us and what we want to do and our pleasures and our power. And that's what, that's what we eat, drink, and sleep half the time. It's, it's the world telling us that's what it's about. And I'm telling you from God's word that your glory is going to fade and God's glory is going to reign. And this goes against the grain of our humanistic culture. But you can't worship yourself. You can't just live your life and be who you want to be. Embrace your sexual identity or your social standing. It's not, that's not what you were created to do. So if you embrace all those other things, you're going to have temporary pleasure and it's going to feel good for a little bit, but it's never going to bring the satisfaction that only doing what you were created to do can actually bring. Only living for God, only bringing him glory will fill that hole in your heart because you have eternity in your heart and you're made in the image of God for something bigger than yourself. So don't cheapen it and don't short yourself. This is the young person who says the same thing you see in 1 Corinthians six nineteen: I am not my own. I am bought with a price, so I will glorify God in my body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 21. This, this is the wealthy, successful business person who says the same thing that you see in, in Matthew. Matthew 6, 19 through 20. I'm not going to lay up for myself treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. I'm going to lay up treasures in heaven. It's Matthew chapter 6, 19 and 20. Everything that we put above our relationship with God is an idol that we have to throw into the ocean of God's glory. So the question is, do you have any idols? Do you have any things in your life, anything in your life that you have just elevated over God to a place that it does not belong? If there's something in your life like that, it can't speak to you the way only God can speak to you. And that's what God is saying in verses 18 through 20. Before we get to the last point, just look again at verses 18 and 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. And here's point three today. Rest on the justice of God. This is where it's at. 
This is where Habakkuk had to find himself to find the understanding and the peace that he needed in that period of waiting. The answer in the silence was, hey, I'm going to rest on the justice of God. Let all the earth keep silence before him. When the Old Testament references the temple or the sanctuary, whenever you see that, just, just mark this down. Whenever in the Old Testament you see a temple, it's talking about the atonement. The atonement. This is where the Israelites would go and they would make an animal sacrifice for their sin. And this was pointing ahead. It was pointing to a future, ultimate, perfect lamb of God that was going to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. But anytime you're seeing temple sanctuary in the Old Testament, it's talking about the atonement. It's it's packaging in there the atonement, which is the New Testament equivalent in our church age of the gospel. Is it not? When we think about forgiveness of sins, we think about the gospel and Jesus Christ coming down to this earth, dying on the cross, rising again the third day to save us. So the New Testament equivalent of the temple and the atonement is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what you have to rest on. One of my absolute favorite verses in all of Scripture is Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, 4, and I'm going to go there and read that for you, just backing up a little bit. When I've been in seasons in my life where I'm just waiting and I don't hear any answers from God, I can specifically think of times in my life where I wasn't getting a job, I needed a job when I couldn't find a girl that was worth pursuing for marriage and I wanted to get married, when I was waiting and waiting and waiting, Psalm 27.4 is one of those verses that carried me through. So back up in verse 1. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. Just one thing. This is the one thing I desire. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Do you see that? Meditating on who God is, in what he has done for us. God loves us. He sent Jesus into this world to die for us. Jesus loved us. He gave his life for us on the cross. Those are the meditations that we have to have in those dark times. Inquire of the Lord. And that's the same thing that God is telling Habakkuk to do, and it's the same thing that we have to do to rest on the justice of God. Maybe you're waiting for children Maybe you're waiting for just relief and and, and you've been struggling with mental health and you're just just waiting for that and it seems to never come. There could be a thousand things where you're waiting for justice. Maybe, Maybe it's physical health and you just don't know where it's coming from. You catch this theme here. This is like the third week in a row where we've talked about this. You go back to who God is. You can't trade what you don't understand. Don't trade what you don't know. Why, God? Where are you? Don't trade that for what you do know. 
You do know that God loves you. You do know that God cares for you. You do know that God has grace and mercy poured out upon you. And even if there's some unknowns and there's some just things that are just confusing in the here and now, one day they will all make sense. One day, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All these things that people live for and they prop up and they just go after, those things will be deaf and mute before a holy God. This is God, the Father, as the supreme, ultimate sovereign, the judge who stands before all. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And this is your answer from God right there in Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is going to speak when it's time. Just like we learned last week. When it is time, when you have actually come to a place where you're depending on Jesus Christ above everything else, when you're not relying on your intellect, your strength, and you're saying, God, I don't have what it takes. I need you. I need you to show up right now. For Habakkuk, the woe is coming to the Chaldeans. God used them to spite themselves, but they aren't going to get away with anything. And that was comforting for Habakkuk. Just like woe is coming to everyone who lives for their false gods of money, power, and sex. And you and I need to do exactly what God is calling Habakkuk to do. To rest on the justice of God. I can't figure this out. I don't have an answer. But I can rest on who God is. And even though I don't understand God... I can trust God because I've seen everything else about God that is true, and this is the only thing that will carry me through this moment of silence, this period of waiting. I have a friend who recently had to resign, and he, I mean, nobody forced, he was, yeah, semi-forced into, into being resigned, into resigning. And this, this is a successful guy. He didn't do anything terribly wrong. It was really just collateral damage from some other person that he worked closely with that caused him to have to resign. And when you go from the top floor corner office with a view and you resign and you don't have anything else to walk into, you're going to ask the question, why? You're going to ask that question. And... And he was asking this question. He's, he's had some counseling over the last, the last couple months. And his counselor told him something that is startling. I want to put it up on the screen for you. His counselor told him, why isn't helpful? Now, I can see some of you like mentally squirming in your seats right now. Wait a minute, what are you talking about, David? Of course, sometimes why is helpful. If you don't know something and you need to understand something a little bit better, ask the person why. Why did you do that? Um, of course, I mean, there's going to be times to ask the question why. But the point of this counselor to my friend was, look, this is a complex situation. It's nuanced. There's a lot of things going on here. You're never fully going to understand why in this one, okay? So in that case, when you're never going to, on this side of eternity, really know why, 
you continually wrestling with this question in your mind, why, 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 it's not helpful right now. It's not helpful because what it's doing, it's giving you a victim mentality. It's not pushing you closer to God. It's not helping you get through this onto the next season of life. It's holding you back, and it's all it's doing is keeping you stuck in the past. So what we see here with Habakkuk is he's resting, he's waiting on God, and God just isn't giving him all the answers right away. He's giving him a glimmer of this. He's like, you know, I will, don't worry, I will judge the Chaldeans. They're not going to get away with this. But at some point, everyone is going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let all the earth be silent before him. At some point, you're just going to have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And even if I don't have all the ins and outs and it doesn't perfectly make sense in my mind, God does know more than I know, and I'm going to trust God. You can see this again in Psalm 73, and this is probably a psalm that Habakkuk would have fallen back on. This was written before Habakkuk, and I believe Habakkuk knew this psalm. Psalm 73, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Do you, say, do you see the same theme again and again? It's, look, I, I'm weary. I don't understand. This is beyond me. I got to just stop asking why, and I got to go to the sanctuary of God. I need to meditate on who he is, what he's done for me. He loved me so much that he sent Jesus Christ to this earth to bear my sin on the cross and take the wrath of God. That cup of wrath was poured out on Jesus because Jesus loves me. That's really all you need to know. You don't have to understand all the billion scenarios that would maybe answer why. You don't really have to know all those things. It's not helpful to know that. What's really helpful to know, the ultimate answer that you have to have is God loves me and he is for me and he sent Jesus and Jesus is my, is my savior. He's the Messiah. He's interceding for me. Our glory fades, God's glory reigns. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. So Habakkuk, what he didn't know was that in 600 years, Jesus Christ would be born. He didn't know Jesus' name. We do know Jesus' name. Jesus is the one who is the direct imprint of God. He is fully God. He is fully man. And Jesus came to this earth to die for us. And through Jesus, our joy can be complete. Through Jesus, he is the one who will usher in complete justice. Let's stand up today. And we're going to sing how Jesus Christ is the one who is exalted over all.